For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us once again to come into this place and to know you in word and sacrament. We ask that you will be with us now, that you will plant the words of your gospel deep within our hearts, that they will yield fruit 30, 60, and 90 fold in keeping with your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Now there's a short story by Ernest Hemingway that I will not pretend to like. No offense to Ernie, it's just not my thing. But it opens with a story or a joke somewhere in there that was apparently well known in Spain at the time. As the story goes, a father went to Madrid and took out an ad in the local paper, and in full it said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven. When Tuesday came, the sun rose hot and dry, and at noon the National Guard had to be called out to disperse the crowd of 800 Pacos who had crowded into the courtyard of the Hotel Montana seeking forgiveness. We all crave forgiveness. People crave forgiveness. But in this cultural moment, forgiveness is like water in that sweltering Spanish sun. We hoard it for ourselves. We don't hand it out to just anybody, right? We act like forgiveness is some scarce commodity, some precious spice we can just keep all to ourselves, hidden away. There's, of course, a certain irony that a society so suddenly seeking justice has no place for forgiveness. But that's a different thing. The kingdom of God, I should say, is a different thing. Our gospel text for this morning is going to show us this. In the kingdom, forgiveness flows down from the heavens, bringing life to the dry places. And we can no more keep God's forgiveness to ourselves than a river can keep its water. Our passage starts with one of those questions with which we're so familiar, right? We hear Peter, it seems like, every other day in the gospels. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now this sounds like another one of those dumb disciple questions, but it's actually not. In this case, it's not, because there's a context to this question. At this time in history, some of the rabbis had started to teach that forgiveness was limited to three premeditated instances of sin. So the logic went, if your brother sins against you and continues to do so time and time and time again, you're not required to forgive because his sincerity is lacking. So after the third time, these rabbis said, you're no longer required to forgive them. Three times, that's it. When Peter throws out the number seven, he's actually more than doubling what these teachers are saying. He's being overly generous because he's finally kind of catching on to that kingdom mentality Jesus is talking about. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is not occasional forgiveness. This is the kind of forgiveness that causes blisters by sheer repetitive nature. In the kingdom of God, forgiveness flows down from the heavens. And the wild thing about the kingdom of God is that it so often flips our world on its head. We actually get introduced to the world of human nature pretty early in the Bible. In fact, I think Jesus is referencing that passage in our gospel text for this morning. In Genesis 4, the world has jumped the tracks. In a page and a half, we've gone from garden harmony to brotherly catastrophe. Eve picks a piece of fruit, and suddenly Cain's picking up a rock to smash his brother's head in. Things devolved quickly. But by the end of chapter 4, we meet Cain's great-grandson Lamech, who is, theologically speaking, a a dumpster fire. 
he is fallen from the same emphasis on the fallen, fallen from the same tree as Cain. And he brags, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, Lamech's the world I know. This world makes sense to me. The world of retribution and vengeance, the world of a tooth for tooth ad nauseum. Striking out at your adversaries when they've wronged you. The world of don't tread on me. These things make sense to me. I mean, how many times has an innocuous comment struck me the wrong way and prompted a rude response? How many times have I lashed out when hurt? And God knows paying wrong for wrong in the moment certainly feels right, doesn't it? But did you notice the numbers he's using here? That's not a coincidence. Lamech says sevenfold is not enough. For every insult or injury given, I'm paying it back 77 times. Jesus says, sevenfold is not enough. For every insult or injury given to me, I'm forgiving another 77 times. See, God's kingdom is undoing the curse of the fall. So Jesus launches into a parable explaining how things work in his kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The context of this probably isn't immediately clear to us, admittedly, but it may have been more clear to the ancient audiences. These servants are probably, most likely, tax collectors empowered by the king. So the debt was technically theirs until they collected enough taxes that they were supposed to. And if they collected all the taxes in their appointed region, they got to keep the difference, which oftentimes reaped a huge profit. But if they didn't collect enough, there's going to be trouble. So one of his servants comes up in this story to settle up, and he's a little short. Sort of makes you think of a scene in a mob movie, right? Like The Godfather. The guy with gambling debts took money from a, a bookie, a loan shark to pay his bookie, and now he's on the hook for three or 4000 and they're break, about to break his legs. Right, you know the scene. That's the feel. That may be how it feels, how it looks. That's the vibe, as the kids say. But we're off a little bit on the dollar amount. Just a hair, just a bit. He's short, admittedly. He doesn't just owe the king three or 4000 Adjusted for our terms today, even including inflation, this little fella owes the king about $11.9 billion. Billion, with a B. He doesn't owe him, a used, owe him a used Corolla. He owes him the GDP of Rwanda. This is the highest number that Greek can actually put out in literal form. So you're not going to pull that out of the couch cushions. But real quick, if you are... Um, So the king looks around, and he assesses the situation. And he knows that the servant can't pay, right? That's an absurd number. So he gives order to ha orders to have he and his family sold into slavery. But the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He begs for mercy, plain and simple. He says he'll pay the king back, but unless he's got $11.9 billion just lying around, you're dead as a doornail, Smalls. You're not doing it. This is the debt that we owe to God. This is what our debt is like. St. Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury about a thousand years ago, give or take. And Anselm set out to write something that we might today call a systematic theology, though in his defense it's nowhere near quite as boring. He asked a simple question, though. Why did God become man? And his answer, I think, is still both insightful and, more importantly, biblical. Through sin, every person has incurred or bought upon ourselves an incalculable debt to God's honor. It's so large that we can't pay it. No one can pay it except for God himself. 
The problem, of course, is that our debt was incurred to us as humans. It is meet and right. It's fitting that we pay our own debts. I think we would all agree. And so that's why God became man. God became man because the debt men owed had to be paid to God. That the cash, the check, had to be written and cashed, signed by a man. Thus, the God-man, Jesus Christ, paid the debt for the sins of the whole world. See, God forgives our sins when we come to him in repentance, with humility. It's as true today as it was a thousand years ago when Anselm's writing, or two thousand years ago when Jesus is ministering. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now let's note, the debt is forgiven simply out of pity for the servant, right? Not because he's come up with some cunning plan to recoup the losses, not because he can demonstrate his value in another way, simply because the king had mercy on him. When the debt was too great, the master took care of it. Your sins are not too great for God. That's the scandalous grace of God revealed in Christ. We tend to be pretty stingy with our forgiveness, but God is more willing to throw it around like confetti. Not flippant, but in sure and certain celebration that a sinner is returning home. And in a different parable, this is probably where the story ends, right? But this parable isn't only about forgiveness of God that flows down from heavens. It's also about sharing that forgiveness. In September 15, 1963, at 10.22 a.m., a bomb went off in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, about 10 minutes from where we're sitting now. That was at 10.22 a.m., but at 9 a.m., I wonder if you know what Sunday school lesson four of the murdered were studying. They were studying a lesson called Love That Forgives All. I think we could learn from that. What our tax collector in the story does next is pretty absurd. I think we could all agree. He goes out and finds his colleague who owes him some money, and not a ton of money, right? Not $11 billion, but 100 denarii. About four or $5,000 in our terms. It's not a small amount. It's nothing to sneeze at, but it, compar- it pales in comparison to the debt that first man's been given. So at the time, if there was a drought or a famine or something like that, and the crops were particularly bad, the king might forgive the debts of his tax collectors, who were then expected to forgive the debts of those who they collected from. At least that was the expectation. But not our friend of the tax collector. No, sir. He leaves the king's palace, and with the king's dirt still on his knees, he wraps his hands around his fellow servant's throat. Pay me what you owe, he says. And the other servant, imitating what he's just seen, perhaps, falls down just as he himself had done mere moments before. And he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now remember, this cat only owes about 5000 Okay, It's nothing to sneeze at, like I said, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he could pay this back. So this is probably a reasonable request, especially when we contrast it with the uh, other servant. Right? If we put $12 billion on one side of the scale and 5000 on the other, the scale's not going to move a whole lot. This isn't apples and oranges, this is apples and orangutans. The debt just does not compare. Since the king forgave the servant so much, we would expect the servant to forgive those who have offended him less, right? So it comes as a pretty big surprise when we see how he handles the situation. The hands that were pleading for mercy are now casting another into prison for a petty debt. It's a scene that's so absurd and so relatable, right? God has forgiven us so great a debt, and yet at times, we feel the temptation to withhold forgiveness from those around us. 
but in the kingdom of God, forgiveness flows down from the heavens. And we can no, long, no more keep forgiveness for ourselves than a river can keep its water. Jason Isbell in the 400 units, probably my most played artist on Amazon over the last few years. His, his wife, Amanda Shires, also plays in the band. And at one of the concerts I was at, he was introducing the, the uh, group to the crowd. And he said, on, uh, Amanda Shires on the, is it violin or the fiddle? And she quickly responded with one of the oldest jokes in the industry, that if you're trying to sell it, it's a violin, and if you're trying to buy it, it's a fiddle. (laughs) I think we have a tendency to market forgiveness in the same way. When it benefits me, for me, forgiveness should be given. Why don't you show me some grace? But when I'm in the position to extend forgiveness to another, sorry, price just went up. When it comes to our sins, we have a tendency to make molehills out of mountains. We like to point out specks through our log-eyed lenses, don't we? And somehow, other people's sins always look so much worse and so much more grandiose than my own. So often, we lack the right perspective because we've forgotten our own situation. I think Tim Keller summarizes it pretty well. He wrote this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. One summer day, John and I were out for a stroller run at Lakeshore, and we ran into my buddy Clayton. And so we ran together for a while, the the three of us or two of us, depending on how you count that. And we ran and we chatted, and eventually my run was finishing, and Clayton had to keep going. And so as he started to run off, there was another guy that we didn't know who was maybe 10 feet behind him, running at roughly the same pace. So they're running kind of parallel 10 feet apart for the next ways. And so John's watching this, and he gets a little confused, and he said, why is that man chasing Mr. Clayton? Which I got a kick out of. So I texted Clayton, and he very quickly shot back. I think he was a creditor, so I didn't slow down. (laughs) I think about that. It's cheesy, but it cracks me up every time. That's how it can feel to us sometimes, though, right? Sometimes it feels like you're just outrunning the failure and the guilt and the shame. But if you slow down, it's all going to come apart. And everybody's going to know. But the scandalous grace of God means that we don't have to run from the debt of our sin. Because the debt has been paid in full. So that we might pass that same forgiveness on to others. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. In that most fundamental form, that father's ad is an invitation. Right? In a moment, we'll hear a very similar call. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another fatherly invitation to grace. These are parts of the comfortable words which Father Michael will read to us in a moment, which assure us of God's grace to us now, to those who repent. See, today we don't just hear word of a future promise. It's not only an invitation to a distant reality, a distant event, It's a call to dine with the king here and now. God graciously invites us to dine with him at the table of Holy Communion. So today, you can taste the Lord's forgiveness for yourself. But remember, that's only half the parable. The second half is lived throughout the week, and that's your homework. One huge debt has already been paid, so what right do we have to withhold forgiveness from another? Because in the kingdom of God, forgiveness flows down from the heavens, bringing life to the dry places. And we can no, lo- no more keep God's forgiveness for ourselves 
than a river can keep its water. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the forgiveness you have wrought to us in Christ Jesus. We ask that you will empower us by your Holy Spirit to forgive others as you have forgiven us. That you will remind us that we are more sinful than we could imagine and more loved than we could ever dare hope. We ask that you will be with us now in this time and lead us in the ways of forgiveness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.